Good morning, Three Rivers. Um, my name is Eric, and it's always a joy and an honor, um, as well as a weighty responsibility to stand and, and proclaim to you, um, thus saith the Lord. And so, um, so I'm excited you guys are here, and um, if, if you are a visitor, if you're visiting with us, um, we are going through a series right now called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. So we've been looking at these different verses throughout uh, the Old Testament. Um, and, and actually today will be our last Old Testament verse before we jump into the New Testament. And so we're just kind of looking at, um, if you have the book and you've been reading it, what it calls like signposts that are pointing us uh, to the whole story of the gospel in the Bible um, that is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so uh, so we're continuing that this morning. Um, and again, we're going to look today at our last Old Testament verse. And then next week, we will begin looking at our New Testament passages um, as we uh, look forward to the coming of Christ. And so um, I don't know about you guys, but but for me... And even as I continue to grow in my uh, in my spiritual life, reading the Old Testament gets more and more exciting, whereas it did in the first, because in the Old Testament, we're looking and we're, we see these people, uh, the writers who are writing the Old Testament are ultimately pointing us towards this coming Messiah that the Old Testament is referring to, that... God Himself in Genesis 3 said that there would be one who would, who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, which is what our hope and our, uh, our joy and our longing and our anticipation is for us, for that one to come to crush the head of the serpent and to break the curse once and for all. And so, um, so for me, it's, it's exciting to, to, to be able to read the Old Testament looking, uh, forward and seeing Old Testament prophets prophesying and then seeing Jesus fulfill those in himself so uh so this is what we have observed so far so as so since this being our last old testament uh verse just going to kind of recap just kind of look at some of the things that we've uh observed from our from our reading so far so we started in genesis 1 where god created the world and everything he created was good he created man as the pinnacle of his creation creation to bear his image to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that was God's command for Adam and Eve was to have dominion over the earth. Um, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden where God Himself would have fellowship with them and where He gave them thousands of yeses, but with one command He told them to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because the day that they would eat of it, they would surely die. So God gave them everything they could ever want. He had fellowship, would literally come down and walk with them in the cool of the day, but they had one command, and that was to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, and then in Genesis 3, we see where the serpent would come along and would begin to cast doubt in the woman's mind by saying, did God really say you were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The temptation for for Adam and Eve wasn't necessarily questioning God's word, but it was that the temptation was that you could be like God. You remember that in Genesis 3 where he says, eat of this tree and you will be like God. And and, and they buy into that lie and they, they eat of the tree that they, they were not to eat of, that God commanded them not to eat of. And 
and, and we see where sin came in, the fall happened, and we've been battling that ever since. That we could be our own God. We could be, nobody's in charge of me. Nobody has to tell me what to do. I'm my own God. No, I don't have to listen to anybody. I don't have to be responsible to anybody. I don't have to give an account to anybody. That's the mentality that we all have, if, if we're honest, before we came to Christ. We're our own person. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I live my life how I want. And that was the temptation uh, for Adam and Eve. Not to eat, just to eat of this, but that they could literally be God. I, I could be like God. That was the temptation. And Adam and Eve fell for that temptation the the serpent twists and distorts god's word to the woman as she as she and along with her husband rebel against god by eating of the tree god had commanded them not to eat of the curse is now in effect adam and eve are now naked and ashamed and are see, and are seeking to cover their nakedness and shame from god opposed to when they were naked and not ashamed and there, there was no need to cover themselves. There, there was perfect fellowship. Now we see nakedness and shame has come in into the world. But despite their rebellion, God in His great mercy would make a promise to the woman that the woman would bring forth an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, the second and greater Adam who would not succumb to the serpent's temptations. In the garden, although God would have been just and righteous and completely destroying and wiping away the, the human race, He is gracious in that He provides for them clothing and He provides for them a promise that there will be one who will come and He will crush the head of the serpent one day. He will crush the head of the serpent. And ultimately, Jesus, this will be fulfilled in Jesus where He would live a life he would be tempted by the devil, if you remember in the Gospels, where Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been tempted by the devil, and he overcomes the temptation. And so from this point in the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is pointing us to the one in whom this would be fulfilled, ultimately in Jesus. In Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. And in Exodus 12, God delivered His chosen people out of Egyptian slavery by commanding His people to take an innocent lamb, kill it, put, it on the, put the lamb's blood over, the, over their door as a sign of His covenant people so that when the angel of death passed by, He would pass over and spare their lives. And then we saw Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of, a few weeks ago, the one in whom God promised would come in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the serpent. He would be the one who would suffer the punishment of our guilt and our shame. He would be the one, as Paul says in Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus would be the wrath satisfier on our behalf that God would pour out His holy, righteous, and anger wrath on Christ for our sins. Jesus would bear that. By His life and by His death, Jesus would satisfy God's wrath for our rebellion against Him. But Jesus would not merely bear the weight of our sin by dying on a cross. No, because if Jesus only died and was not resurrected, our faith would be in vain, our preaching would be in vain, our worship would be in vain. We would even be misrepresenting God, as Paul tells the Corinthians. But thanks be to God that Christ is not dead. He is risen. The grave would not and could not contain Him. Roman soldiers could not stop Him. 
And Christ would rise victorious over the grave, proving that He has power over death, hell, and the grave, that He has come to bring salvation to us. And last week we saw that the resurrection was promised. There was no doubt in Ezekiel, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the resurrection was promised long before Jesus stepped off His throne in in heaven and into the world. And so now that we have resurrection promise, we are now looking at Isaiah's prophecy of new creation, which is what we are longing for. The reality is that we live in a broken society. Because our parents rebellion against God, we too have inherited that same rebellion, and it has affected everything. When we sin and rebel against God, it does not only affect you and me personally, but rather it has ramifications everywhere in our lives. It affects everything. Adam and Eve's one sin and rebellion against God had effect on all people all over the world. Marriages are broken. Not only just hard living marriages, but even our society and the way that we define marriage, are, we, we've completely twisted and distorted what, uh, what biblical marriage even looks like. Husbands neglect their responsibility of what God has called them to be as husbands and fathers. Wives seek to usurp the authority of their husbands as head of the marriage relationship. Children are defined against those whom God has placed over them as their authority. And the list could literally go on and on. Everything is broken. We don't have to look far to see that the world is broken. We turn on the news and see evilness. Everywhere we look, we can see that the world is broken. But I think we, I think we all can realize the world is broken. We are longing for the day when all things will be made new and all things function the way God intended for them to function. And so that's where we're looking at in Isaiah 65, verse 17. That's our passage. So everything that we've looked at in the Old Testament, we've looked at creation. We've, we, we saw how sin came into the world and how Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God. And now redemption, we're seeing everything that's pointing us to the fact that Christ will come to bring us redemption, to bring us reconciliation to the Father, and then ultimately restoration, where we all things will be new, everything will be restored to its created function and its purpose. So let's look at Isaiah 65:17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So we want to look and see what this passage is saying and what does it mean. Um, and, and although we are doing what we call kind of a topical series where we're not studying through a book uh, verse by verse and, and, and breaking it down, we still want to look at this um, in a way that that finds out the original meaning because the original meaning of Isaiah sixty five seventeen is the point of the sermon. So the point of the text is the point of the sermon. So we want to make sure we're not just pulling things out of thin air and, and seeing what, what this passage means. Um, and so because our passage takes place at the end of Isaiah, we want to kind of get an overview of the book of Isaiah to see how we, we got up to this, how we got up to Isaiah saying, I create new heavens and a new earth. When Isaiah received his call 
to prophetic ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. So if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, we see this vision where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees this vision. Sees the Lord high and exalted on His throne, surrounded by seraphs, calling out, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The vision that Isaiah saw completely wrecked his life. And throughout the book, he makes numerous amounts of references to God as the Holy One of Israel. So you read through the book of Isaiah, and you'll see Isaiah constantly referring to God or the Lord or Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel. Because and all from that vision where he sees fire, he sees the holiness, the purity of God. And so throughout the book, that's what he refers to him as, the Holy One of Israel. When God chose Israel as His covenant people, He commanded them that they were to be holy as I am holy. So He commanded them that you should live your lives, commands them live, that they are to live their lives in holiness, live in obedience to God. But we know that the people did not always obey this command. And Isaiah recognized that this national mandate had not been realized in the life of Israel. And, he, and Isaiah realized that, the, that he lived among an unclean people who were calloused and without understanding. So he realizes, man, these people are calloused. They're hard. They're, they're defiant against the God that has chosen them. They're not living in holiness. They're going after other gods. They're going after other idols and things in their lives. They're not pursuing the Lord. And so the prophet um, would, would speak warnings from the Lord to the people calling them to repentance, calling them to turn from their idols, calling them to turn from their false gods and turn to the one true God, their God, the living God. But they would refuse to heed the prophet's message and it would ultimately bring destruction and deportation upon this nation, the nation of Israel. But God's holiness also means that He would be faithful to His own promises so although the people were rebellious rebellious and defiant against him it would not mean that he would completely forget his covenant that he made with with abraham all the way back in genesis 12 it was because god was holy that he would not utterly abandon israel but he would be her savior and redeemer isaiah's own name which means yahweh will save or yahweh is salvation reflects this aspect of god's character God would deliver the nation from Assyria and from Babylonian captivity. The Lord would vindicate Himself before their eyes, before the eyes of the nations by saving His people. So they would be enslaved. They would be held captive by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. But God would not ultimately leave them in that state, in their captivity. He would ultimately vindicate His name before the nations and He would save His people Israel and bring them out of that captivity. God would not only save Israel from her evil oppressors, but He would begin to speak through the mouth of Isaiah, prophesying and looking forward to the One who would deliver us and Israel from the One who is behind all evil oppression, the serpent from the garden. And Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant who would come and be oppressed and afflicted for the people of Israel and ultimately for all who would believe in Him. He would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The lamb would be slaughtered, but the lamb would rise again and restore Israel to a land of perfection, a place where God rules as king, and as a place where all things are restored to their created function. If we read, let's, we're going to read just through the, the rest 
of chapter 65 just to see this picture, this place that Isaiah is, is painting for his reader. So in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in its sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear them. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord." We can see this this sense of perfection where all things are being, where he says that uh, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. But that doesn't happen right now because one would eat the other. But in this holy new creation, new heaven, new earth, we see where things like that happen because all things are new. Everything's perfect. Perfection is set in. I think it's interesting that we started in perfection where God created the world in no sin, created man to be in fellowship and be in uh, perfection with God Himself. And now we are ending there. We're ending in that same state. Perfection. Fellowship with God. So I think it's easy for us to say that man's purpose is to enjoy God to be in fellowship with God. That's what God created us for in the beginning, but we rebelled against that. And although we rebelled against that, God in His great mercy has done all that all that can be done to reconcile that, to bring us back into this relationship where we can enjoy Him forever, for all eternity, in perfection, in perfect fellowship with Him. That's where we're started and that's where we're ending. We see creation, fall, redemption, and restoration again started in perfection. Sin came into the world. Christ is being prophesied of coming into the world to to bear the weight and guilt of our sin and shame and he's ultimately going to bring restoration. And that's what the people of Isaiah's time were were looking for. If you remember, Mitch a couple of weeks ago uh, read the passage from from First Peter where it talks about how prophets in the Old Testament were prophesying uh, of this one who was to come, but they didn't really know who they were prophesying about. And so, but now we have the advantage to where we are able to look back and see that Jesus is the one that these, that these prophets were prophesying about. And we are able to see the finished work of Christ. Unlike the prophets, they were only prophesying as, as the Holy Spirit gave them inspiration. 
So a few things that we can that we can draw from this text that that we can apply to our lives. Um, and, and most of these things may not necessarily be how can we leave here today and, and apply them right now, but are really truths about us. If you are in Christ of this new creation and this longing for this new creation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation and you will be a new creation. Paul tells the Corinthians that you are a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul says that if you have repented of your sin, put your faith, your trust in Christ, you already are a new creation. Because Christ has brought you from death to life. He's brought you out of darkness and into light. And He's created, given you a new heart, given you a new desire, given you new um, affections for Him that only Christ can do. He, can only, he, he is the one who, who, who brings new life into you. And so, as, as believers, as those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, our life should look differently. We are a new creation. Also, you will be a new creation. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So John says that when Christ appears, we'll see Him as He is, and we will be like Him. We will go from this process of sanctification where we're being made more into the image of Christ into glorification where we are like Christ. The serpent's temptation in the garden that man could be like God will actually come true for those who are God's children. We will be like Christ. We will be glorified. We'll be perfected in this new creation, in this new earth where our sinful desires in the, and that wage war against us now will, no, will, will cease. We'll no longer have to worry about that, but we will only know obedience to the Lord and only know worshiping the Lord in, in, in a glorified sense. The second thing is now that we are new creations, and we will be new creations. We must seek things that are above and renew our minds daily through the transforming power of the gospel. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So Paul commands us as believers that, that we are to set our, our minds on things that are above. Set our minds on things of God, not on the things of the world. Because our, we've died. Paul, talks to, Paul tells the Romans that, uh, that are we to sin that grace may abound? Like, should we use grace as, as an excuse to live in sin? He says, by no means. He says, because you have died with Christ. We've literally died with Jesus. That's what baptism is. is a picture of us going into the ground, burying, dying to our old self, and being resurrected in the likeness of, and in the newness of, of, 
of Jesus. And so Paul commands us to set our minds on things that are above. Seek the Lord. Pursue the Lord. Put away the things of the flesh. The third thing that we can, we can look at, the path to glory is marked by suffering and persecution. Remember Isaiah 53, Jesus is referred to as a lamb being led to the slaughter. This new heaven and new earth, oftentimes people want perfection with Christ, but they don't want any suffering or any hardships to go along with that. They want easy life, they want glory, but they don't want uh, to suffer they they just want to to live a comfortable life, but we know that the scripture doesn't teach that, and we should not fall into that sort of temptation. That that now that we have eternal life through Christ, that we can just cruise through life with with no persecution, with no suffering. Jesus is a perfect example for us that. Isaiah prophesies of him as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Jesus' own disciples tried to lead him away from the cross. If, if you read in the Gospels, you'll see where Jesus is referring to the fact that he has to go and be handed over into the chief priest to be rejected by men, to be delivered up. And Peter begins to say, no, that, that's not how it should happen. That's not what, what's going to happen. And, and Jesus literally tells Peter, He says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus, no, Jesus knew that His goal and His aim and His mission was for the cross. And it was suffering. It was not easy. He was rejected by His own. Acts 14.22 Paul says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We must go through suffering, persecution, whatever it will that the Lord may bring into our lives to enter into the kingdom of God. And then James commands his readers to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James calls us that when we meet trials of, of whatever, whatever the Lord brings into our lives, that we are to count it all joy. And not that we are to have this fake sense of joy, but rather this internal peace with our souls, that it is well with our souls, that we can worship the Lord even in the midst of trial and suffering and persecution. We can count it all joy because he says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So when our faith is being tested, when our faith is under under attack, and when we hold strong to the truth of the gospel that that Christ is in control, that Christ is doing all this for my ultimate good, then it will produce steadfastness, it will produce endurance. That our faith will be genuine. And our faith will grow deeper in Christ. I think Mitch has said many times where, where we kind of have this misconception of, of suffering equals you know, not walking close with the Lord or, or not trusting in the Lord enough. But rather it's 
Christ brings things into our lives to give us a deep, to, to deepen our faith and our trust in Him. That He will bring us to a point to where we have no other choice but to depend on Him solely for everything. And James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we want to have, let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may grow more into the image of Christ, and we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This should be our aim, this should be our goal that we strive for, that when we do meet trials and persecution and suffering, that we count it all joy, knowing that Christ is sufficient in all that we need. And number four, for this new heaven and new earth, ultimately this should be our longing for this new creation where all things are restored and we are eternally united with Christ. As believers, again, we, we, we understand and we realize that the world is broken, that, that everything in it flies against the kingdom of light. The kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light are constantly at, at, at battle with each other. And we, again, we realize that. We know that. We know that things are not functioning the way that, that God originally created them for. And so ultimately our longing should be for this new creation and this new earth where all things are functioning and running the way that God created for them to be. That should be our hope. That should be our longing that, that we are not so tied to this world that we're not looking for that day, that we're not looking forward to that day, and that we understand our citizenship is not of this world, but it's of another world. Romans 8, verse 18, turn over to Romans 8. Paul talks about this longing. Romans eight eighteen says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And listen to this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul is saying that the earth is in longing and and, in anticipation to be released from the bondage of corruption. And and so are we. Our spirit groans inwardly that we are are waiting to be freed from this, this, this world that is broken. And as we wait eagerly as our as adoption as for our adoption as sons. And the last passage, Revelation 21. 
Revelation 21, 1 through 8 says, this is John writing as he see as as the Lord. Um, he he is seeing these visions from the Lord. Verse twenty, or chapter twenty one, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. So this should be our hope that Christ will ultimately bring this new heaven and new earth. And he refers to in in, in verse two as a bride adorned for a husband that that like when we get when you go to weddings and and everybody's sitting and and the bride comes through and everybody stands up and looks at the bride because she's beautiful and she's pure and she's holy and that's what that's what we as the church are are compared to we are called the bride of Christ so that we should want to be pure and holy and present ourselves to God in holiness for that day when he comes And so we see this place of perfection that that John is prophesying of that is ultimately to come where there will be no more death, no crying, no mourning, no pain. The former things passed away. Christ dwelling with us, making all things new for all eternity. And And this is our hope that we will be united with Christ forever. For those who have their faith and their trust in Christ. This is our hope. And if you don't have that hope, we would we would plead and beg with you to be reconciled to the Father. To repent, put your faith and trust in Christ. And so this is where we are at in in history. Creation has happened, the fall has happened, redemption has happened, and now we're ultimately waiting for the return of Christ. And so this should be our hope. And this is what we long for, to be eternally united with Christ. Amen. So, uh, so I encourage you, live, live, let's live our lives in anticipation and longing for the fact that Christ is coming. So let's pray and we'll worship the Lord together. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the fact that you are coming and you will create new things that the old things, former things will, will pass away and all things will be restored to, to 
the way that they are created to function in the beginning. And Lord, I just pray that um, you would give us longing in our hearts and in our souls for for that day. Pray that we would live our lives in a way that that reflects the gospel that seeks you daily and pursues you daily that lives lives of holiness and uh Lord I just pray that we would be obedient to your word and and seeking to make disciples in our workplace and in our homes and uh just give us longing for your for your new earth, your new heaven. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen.